Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Laurel Conrad, the program director at the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. I'm filling in for CVLPI's President Michelle Easton today, who is very sad that she can't make it, but she is in California. Uh, thank you all for coming today, and welcome to our May sub CWN. I also want to give a special thank you to Lori Mashburn, representing the Heritage Foundation today. Heritage Foundation has been our CWN partner for many years now. We're delighted to have Carolyn Bowman with us today to talk about, or Carlin Bowman today to talk about public opinion and demographic change in tumultuous times. Carlin is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She joined AEI in 1979 and was managing editor of Public Opinion magazine until 1990. From 1990 to 1995, she was editor of AEI's public policy magazine, The American Enterprise. Carlin studies and writes widely on many public opinion topics. In 2000, she began a series of AEI public opinion studies, including polls on patriotism, public opinion on taxes, and attitudes about economic anxiety. In 2014, she co-authored an ebook on attitudes about the 2008 financial crafts on Wall Street. In 2015, she published another ebook on views on the American dream. Carlin also compiles and edits AEI's monthly polling newsletter, Political Report. In 2015 and 2016, she collaborated on a, on a project on Americans changing demographic nationally and in the states. She is a regular participant in AEI's Election Watch series, the longest running election analysis program in Washington, DC. And she writes a column for Forbes.com. Please join me in welcoming Carlin Bowen. Thank you very much, Laura, and thank all of you for coming out today on what is such a beautiful day, the first one we've had in a very long time. As I was rounding the corner to come, I thought, hmm, would I have come if I weren't the speaker? <laughs> so I certainly, but I'm very grateful that you've all come. And it's always a pleasure for me to be back at Heritage. Um, I saw Ed Fulner at a dinner a few weeks ago, and we were reminiscing about being in Washington in the early 70s when you could count the number of conservatives, I think, on, on two hands. Uh, a very, very long time ago, I came to work for the sainted junior senator from New York, James Buckley, a conservative from New York, and I have certainly stayed in touch with him and the group of friends that I made in that office many years ago, I think is often true for young people, have remained very, very close friends today. The, we were loners on Capitol Hill as conservatives. It was a very, very different time. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, Laurel, as, I, as she said, I've been studying public opinion and demographics for a very long time at AEI, and I thought I'd divide this talk just into a few sections today to talk first a little about the polling business and what's been happening to it. I, I do not think surveys will be around uh, in the way that we've known them in the next four or perhaps eight years. Um, the business has some very significant problems. Even the best designed surveys by Pew and Gallup now have response rates that are consistently below 10%. Um, we do not know if we can create a sample that looks like America with response rates below 10%. I don't think polls should ever be used to make policy. I think they're too crude, too blunt an instrument for that purpose. But I think if you study them carefully, even with all of the current shortcomings, you can learn a great deal about what makes a complex public tick. And I want to talk about the three things I think about when I look at public opinion. In many areas, you see profound continuity of attitudes. Um, just to give you one example, in a question asked by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, one of the best survey outfits in the country, NORC, as they're called, asked people whether it was better for the future of the United States if we took an active part in foreign affairs, or whether it was better for the future of the country if we stayed out. That time, two-thirds of us said it was better for us to take an active role in the post-war environment, and about 25% said it was right for us to stay out. During the Vietnam War, that stay out sentiment ticked up to about 35%. Um, and they've asked that question 45 times, identical wording year after year, and that is now 41%. So you get a sense that there is some movement there, but we're, we're still internationalist nonetheless. The majority sentiment is, is an internationalist sentiment. Now, that isn't to say that we're not cranky about the costs of bearing international burdens and tired of shouldering a lot of those burdens on our own, but we are internationalist nonetheless. Um, in another area, 
um, where you see profound continuity. We're still a very deeply religious nation, even though some things are changing that are, that are very important overall. Gallup asked in 1938 for the first time, how often do you attend church? And about 40, I think 43% of America said they attended church every week or every other week. Um, that's gone down somewhat, but still very, very strong overall, indicate that commitment um, to their religious faith. Two groups are growing in the country on the religious spectrum these days, those who are very deep believers, um, and also what we call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, those people with no conventional religious affiliation driven largely by the young. Um, that isn't to say these people don't believe in God, but they're not conventionally religious. And so that is a both an example of the continuity of American um, attitudes as well as some of the changes that we're seeing. Side by side that, that continuity, we see just enormous change in so many areas, and particularly on the social issues, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those later. Um, just to give you some of the examples of questions about change, another of my favorites is the question that Gallup asked in the 1930s, and this is the way they worded the question at that time. They said, would you be willing to vote for a woman for president if she were qualified in every other way? Think about that wording. Now, literally, they changed the wording the very next year. They realized they'd made quite a big mistake. And they began asking a series of questions about willingness to vote for different groups. Um, today, about 95% of Americans say they're willing to vote for a qualified woman for president. That's the way they ask the question now. But if you look at other groups, you see examples of both continuity and change. Um, for example, they asked uh, the first question about would you be willing, there's only one group that there's still skepticism about, and again, this goes back to the deep religious nature of the country. A majority for the first time last year said they would be willing to vote for an atheist for president. Um, it's now 54%. Um, and then Gallup asked that question for the first time in 1958, and it's been sort of moving up ever so slowly. But some other questions, you haven't seen any change. When Mitt Romney's father ran for president in 1967, 27% of those surveyed said that they would not be willing to vote for a qualified Mormon. When Gallup repeated that question in 2012, the number was fairly similar. So again, continuity with change. Uh, today there is a majority willingness to vote for most different kinds of groups that we hear about in the society, and some that are moving, moving faster than others. But it's still a lot of change on the question, like voting for a woman for president. Um, um, but the thing that makes public opinion polls really difficult for me to interpret, and this is what I struggle with every day, and I see the evidence of this of four big public policy areas that I think are important to us today, and that is the massive contradiction that we see in so many areas of survey research. These are answers that people give. They hold contradictory opinions in their own hearts, and they see no reason to resolve the contradictions in their own thinking. Um, and you see it, as I said, in, in so many areas. We have questions about immigration policy, but at the one and the same time, we think that immigrants add to the culture, take jobs that other people won't shake, and, and the like. And when that happens on a public policy issue, most of us pull away from the issue. We're not engaged in it at all. We see the evidence on trade. Trade causes the loss of American jobs. People believe that very strongly, but at the same time, they want to buy cheap shoes. Um, and in the area where I think you see more contradiction than any other in the survey research liter literature is the issue of abortion. When you ask, as many pollsters do, do you consider abortion to be an act of murder? Majorities or pluralities almost consistently say yes, that's the way I see the issue. But if you ask a different kind of question, should the decision to have an abortion be a personal <coughs> choice between a woman and her doctor, large majorities consistently say it should be a personal choice. Um, when you think about that, it's murder, I'm for it. Those are pretty <laughs> contradictory responses, but yet many people have those same views in their own hearts. And again, because it's not an issue that really occupies them daily, they pull away from the issue, leaving the playing field to people who don't see the gray. Now, the media covers those people because they're always um, in controversy of one sort or another, but that's not really where most Americans are on the issue. Um, there are some interesting trends, uh, subgroup trends relating to abortion, and I'm going to talk about those a little bit later, but the kind, when you see areas of public policy like immigration, trade, abortion, where there is that kind of deep contradiction, most Americans are not paying attention. 
they're pulling away from the issue. Now, people in Ohio care a great deal about trade, and we're going to talk a little bit about the exit poll data. Um, but for the most part, they're not thinking about those issues on a daily basis. And, and some of them, I would certainly hope they were thinking about some of the issues in the way that I think about them, but that just doesn't happen to be the case. We have had exit polls in, from the primaries and caucuses in 26 states. Um, exit polls are a very interesting tool because they give us our only snapshot of voters, of people who actually turn out to vote. And of course, the big exit poll is conducted on election day. Exit polls um, are conducted by a consortium of the five networks and the Associated Press. They start planning for the next election almost immediately after the last election has ended. And each network has a designated person who works on the exit poll, and they scrap a lot over whose question is going to be in the exit poll over time. And CBS News wants its question, Fox News wants its question, NBC wants its question. and so. There are arguments until very close to the time that the primary and the caucuses begin where they're deciding what kinds of questions are going to be on the exit poll. And I was particularly frustrated this year because they didn't ask a lot of identical questions in a Republican and Democratic contest. I can understand why they did that. And when you hear some of the results, you'll, you'll understand too. But they're the, they're the only, only snapshot that we really have of voters. And so that's why I think they're particularly valuable. As I always say, I don't think polls should be used to make policy, whether the exit polls, whether they're the new CBS News, New York Times poll this morning that shows um, Hillary leading Trump, I think, by four or five points, and the Fox poll the day before showing Trump leading Hillary by a few points. And so we're going to have a lot of back and forth on those. They're too crude to make policy. They're too blunt to make policy. Um, and frankly, they have very little predictive value until about 100 days out, and we're not 100 days out. So as we get closer to the campaign, I'm going to start paying a lot more attention to them, even though they are my business. Um, let me quickly touch on some of the exit poll results, and I'm going to look at my notes here because um, I don't want to get any of these numbers wrong. In most states, majorities or pluralities of voters in Democratic contests wanted the next president to continue Obama's policies. That's not very surprising. But I thought I'd tell you what voters in Vermont said. 49% of them, nearly half, wanted the next president to be more liberal than Barack Obama. But what I thought was significant, that in 12 of the 26 states where they asked that question, 30% or more of Democrats wanted the next president to be more liberal. In every contest for which we have an exit poll, all 26 voters in Democratic contests identified as more voters in Democratic contests identified as liberal than did so in 2008. In most cases, the increase was very significant. In every state except Iowa, a pretty conservative state to begin, voters in GOP contests were more conservative than they were in 2008. The primary process tends to pull both parties to their extremes, and then everybody scrambles for the center where the votes used to be. Um, in the 12 Democratic contests where they asked the question, 78% or more of voters said that the economic system favors the wealthy and isn't fair to all. The economy and jobs was the top issue for Democrats everywhere. And of the four issues that the exit pollsters examined, terrorism ranked last for Democrats everywhere. Health care and inequality tied for second and third place for Democrats. For Republicans in most states, the top issue was the economy and jobs, too. In a few states, however, government spending topped the list. Again, I haven't seen them ask that question in a long time, including government spending, but it was there, and, and it, people made it the top issue in several states. In the five Democratic contests where the exit pollsters asked about Wall Street, 55% or more said that it does more to hurt than to help the economy. And those were states primarily in the Northeast. And in one of the most striking polls in the election that I've seen, and this goes to a pillar of conservative thought, a conservative's belief in free trade, they asked the question about free trade um, in eight states. And they weren't the same Republican and Democratic states, but a number of them were the same. And in the states where they were the same, more Democrats than Republicans favored free trade. Um, that was a very surprising finding. We really haven't seen that before. Let me touch on some of the things we learned from the Republicans. In the 18 states where the question was asked, GOP voters supported a temporary ban on Muslim um, immigrants who are not U.S. citizens from entering the country. In quite a few of these states, that was 75% or more. In all states, it was a solid majority. 
Um, in only two states, Mississippi and New York, did half or more of voters in GOP primaries say that illegal immigrants should be deported to the countries from which they came. In all of the rest of the contests, re voters in Republican contests said that there should be a path to citizens for illegal immigrants. Um, Trump carried the white evangelical vote in 19 of 27 states for which we have data. That was one of the other big surprises in the polls. And as I said, the primary process pulls us, pulls us apart, and then in the general election, that we, we move more, more closely to the middle. I think the top issue, unless something dra changes dramatically in this election, will be the economy and jobs. That's one of the way I'm watching how trade plays into that overall. And I think that harkens back to one of the few distinctive moments that we have in American public opinion. Um, there are very few of those in a business that goes back to 1935. Among the handful of recent ones in 1984, Morning in America, we spoke as one as a population. We spoke as one in the late 1990s and the early 2000s or when Bill Clinton was president because the economy was doing so well. And people felt better about everything. They felt better about the environment, though that really had nothing to do with the economy. We were speaking with one voice overall. 9-11 was clearly one of those moments. But the most recent of those moments and the one that's had the most searing effect on public opinion is the financial crash in 2008. I've read hundreds of poll questions over being in this business for a long time, and I've never before seen fear. Uh, I didn't see it after 9-11, but it was clearly there after the 2008 financial crash in September and October. The University of Michigan's Consumer Confidence Index, it's been around since 1954, asking the same questions quarter after quarter, month after month, had the largest single drop that they had ever seen at that particular time. And in questions that several pollsters asked, Americans said that they feared that our economic system would collapse. That hasn't gone away. Um, there's no question about that. There is an enormous anxiety. Um, and among Republicans, there's a lot of anger. And we certainly saw that in one of the questions that the exit polls, um, that the exit polls um, asked in the, in the primaries and the caucuses. But interestingly, and this is just a footnote that, that I'd, I'd love some of your um, ideas about what it might mean, the pollsters never used the word anger between 1935 and 1980. Only once is there a question with the word anger in it. And it was a question about Eisenhower's illness, and people were asked whether they would be angry if the press talked about Eisenhower's illness. But no questions at all about anger. And today, because the polling business is so closely tied to the media, tied at the hip, these polls are done, they pay for them together, um, we're getting a lot more emotion in polls. There was not a single question about compassion in the entire polling literature before 1976. So again, just much more emotion. I'm not sure what that means. Is it a reflection of who we are? Is it the media promoting anger? Are we really not that angry? I mean, there are a lot of questions I have about this, and I have no long-term historical data. But what I do have very long-term historical data on, and I brought a handout because I'm going to be, I've already talked about a lot of numbers, but I'm going to be talking about a lot more numbers now as I move into a discussion of, of demographics. Um, I just finished a, a multi-year project with Brookings and the Center for American Progress on um, changing American demography. And my colleague, Bill, Bill Fry, one of the best demographers in the country at Brookings, and Rui Teixeira, a sociologist and political scientist at CAP. I mean, we have very different views, the three of us. But we do agree on what the demographic data are showing. And I want to talk about three groups in particular that relate strongly to the election. And I'm going to do it in a way that, that just because you will have heard this term a lot. And um, I could look at demographics in a very different way. But I'm going to look at a term that the Democrats use, which is, they use two different terms. They talk about the rising American electorate, or they talk about America ascendant. And I think the place to start here is the changes in race and ethnicity between the 2000 and the 2010 census. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the outlines of this story. Um, the Asian population was the fastest growing population in the United States between 2000 and 2010. The Hispanic population was the second largest or second fastest growing population in the United States. It contributed 56% um, of the nation's growth between 2000 and 2010, so an enormous change. The important fact to remember about the growth of the Hispanic population is that 58% 
of the increase came from births here rather than new arrivals. And if I could take a slight digression here, my colleague at AEI, Michael Barone, um, has written a book about migrations. And he makes the point that if you look historically, that in the past, um, a lot of earlier migrations just stopped and they never returned to their previous levels. That's clearly what's happening in terms of total migration from Latin America. It is slowed very substantially. I mean, we hear a lot of stories about young children coming alone, but overall those numbers are down very significantly. The 2008 financial crash, many Hispanic families um, owned that first home, couldn't keep up the mortgages. If you look, for example, at the demographics of a state like Nevada that has a very important Hispanic population, um, a lot of people lost their homes, went back to Mexico. The Mexican economy looked a little bit stronger overall. We do not know whether or not that stream of migration will come back in the way it once did. Asians are now the fastest growing ethnic group in Texas. So some very, very significant changes in the demography of the population. When you think back to the 2012 election, um, I thought it was a pretty smart move for the Democrats to try to hold North Carolina in 2012, um, your home state. And uh, they, um, they had their convention there. Uh, the Hispanic population in North Carolina grew 110% between 2000 and 2010 from a very small base, but 110%. So if you're looking to the future, you think about a population, who, population that will be citizens at some point, will be age eligible, will be old enough to vote, and citizens, um, it's pretty important. Now, they didn't, lose, they didn't win North Carolina, but I thought it was a pretty smart move, also a smart move to have their convention in uh, Colorado in, in 2008. Um, the Hispanic population, as I said, is, is growing because of births here, but Hispanics still have and will for quite a while have uh, a problem in that their electoral weight does not match their demographic weight. And let me give you the statistics, and these are from Bill Fry at Brookings. Um, for every 100 Hispanics in 2012, 44 were eligible to vote, age eligible, citizens, registered, and the like. For every 100 whites, that number was 78. For every 100 blacks, 69 were. And for every 100 Asians, 53%. So you see that they're really at, a, at an electoral deficit right now. But that's changing. This is a very young population, but aging very fast. The aging of that population will have an enormous effect on the electorate, but it's also going to have an effect on an important segment of the electorate that's very conservative. And this is something we call the browning of the gray. The senior population is becoming much more diverse, and that's going to change the electoral calculus in many ways. The African-American vote is obviously, I think everybody here knows, one of the few monolithic votes in American politics, overwhelmingly democratic. The African-American population is growing very slowly. But there was something extremely significant about the African-American population in 2008 and then again in 2012. In 2008, for the first time, young African-Americans voted at a higher rate than young white Americans. In 2012, all African-Americans voted at a higher rate than than uh, all white Americans, a huge change, a first in our history, um, and something very significant. And I think it explains why Hillary Clinton is, is spending so much time in the African-American community and African-American truth. She has to shore up that vote and hope that it's as high as um, it was for Barack Obama, because that will be essential to her, um, her election victory if she's elected. Um, if you look at these various um, ethnic groups, um, there's one other factor to add in here, and it really makes the picture complex. And more than a quarter of Asians and Hispanic recent newlyweds married someone of a different race. Um, now, the African-American vote, as I suggested, is monolithically democratic. Um, I don't know whether that's going to be the case for the Hispanic vote. Um, certainly, Hispanics have cast their first two votes uh, for Barack Obama, pretty important, about two-thirds of them, a little less in 2012 than in, than in 2008, but still very significant share. Um, it's possible that the Hispanic will vote will be much more like the vote of the Irish at the turn of the last century, where they didn't even think of themselves as being Irish other than in terms of family connections. Uh, 
And those kinds of ties just in some ways diminished very significantly. Will that be true of Hispanics? I don't know. Um, I certainly know, and I certainly know in looking at the attitudes of Hispanics, and we're frequently told that they're more culturally conservative, and I think there's certainly some evidence of that. One of my favorite questions from the Pew Hispanic poll asks Spanish dominant households, English Spanish households, and English only Hispanic households. This question. Do you think a young woman should be able to live on her own before she gets married? And you can imagine, Spanish-dominant Hispanic households say, absolutely not. And English-dominant Hispanic uh, households say, of course she should be able to live on her own. So you get a sense of, of changes in the population and also um, perhaps some other, in many other areas, significant openings. On most social and cultural issues, they may be a little bit more conservative. Um, um, but not significantly so. And once again, they've cast their first couple of votes for a Democratic president. Will that be an anchor for the Hispanic population? I don't know, but it's going to be pretty important um, going forward to think about that. In 2000, the exit pollsters asked a, they usually give us on the exit poll, you know, it's that single piece of paper with a bunch of questions on the front about your attitudes and a bunch of questions on the back about your, your just basic demographic information, and they hand it out to every X person, and each precinct has a different skip interval. You either hand it to every eighth person or every tenth person, depending on what the computer has spit out. And they usually ask a four-fold age break. Are you 18 to 29, 30 to 44, and so on and so forth? Really simple question, because they've got to tabulate those results so that they can start telling you what's happened in the election pretty early in the evening. But for some reason or other, that year they asked a really detailed age break. And the youngest group, and here I want to turn to the millennials, the youngest group in the population uh, was the most liberal and democratic. That's not too surprising. That usually happens. Um, but the second most democratic group in the electorate was people over the age of 80. Now think about that. These were people who came of age during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. They're largely disappearing from the scene now. Most of them have died at this point. But they formed their first thoughts about politics in the FDR era, and they carried that identification with them as they aged, and they still remain substantially democratic. So that was, um, um, again, there's only one other distinctive generation right now in American politics, and that is those people who came of age at the end of Jimmy Carter's presidency when he seemed incompetent at home and impotent abroad, um, and the generation that preceded or followed it. That generation is still a little bit more Republican than the previous or the following generation. So looking at Hispanics and casting their first couple of votes pretty heavily for a Democratic president, we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to that going forward. The demographers um, are estimating, and this is just an estimate, that about 30% of the population could be minority in this election. I think that may be a little bit high. And again, it's not completely monolithic, um, um, but it's something we really need to pay attention to because the white vote is declining by two percentage points every four years in national elections. It was 72% white um, in 2012, and it's probably going to be about 70% white. Think about what it was in 1972. It was about 90% white, and now we're at 72. So you can see the picture of demographic change in the society. I mentioned the millennials because I'm paying a lot of attention to them. Uh, young people, particularly those in college and with college degrees, tend to lead change in our society. Society. They lead change in fashion, and we all sort of follow along the rest of us. But we pay a lot of attention to this, this, this generation, and particularly this generation because it's so big. Um, millennials are, in this election, an equal share of eligible voters to the very large baby boom. They're both 31% of the potential electorate now. Most of those millennials are not going to vote. In 2012, 19% of them voted. You're not very reliable voters if you're young. Um, but there are a lot of other things that I think are very distinctive about your generation. Um, you're the most educated generation in history, um, especially young women. Uh, you are the most supportive of gay marriage and marijuana legalization. But the issue of abortion is different, and most sociologists expect that each generation will be a little bit more socially liberal and tolerant than the, than the generation before. That hasn't happened on abortion. Now, you don't look much different from the population as a whole, those of you who are young, but those numbers have not moved. Um, 
the Guttmacher Institute that's done a lot of focus group work with younger Americans to talk about this issue. You know, why why don't why aren't you becoming more more liberal on this issue overall? Seems to suggest that it's the presence of a, of sonograms. You've seen a picture of your little brother, your little sister, and it's had a profound change on attitudes. But again, just in a holding pattern, not moving, looking pretty much like the population as a whole. So abortion is the one issue in terms of the social issue landscape um, where that general trend of greater social liberalism is, is not apparent. Uh, millennials are less conventionally religious, but just as likely to believe in God as older generations, but less likely to go to church. Um, in the demographics business, we like to say that marriage, mortgages, and children pull you into the voting booth and also pull you into church. And that could be true for this generation, but they are certainly at this point less conventionally religious. And I won't ask any questions about this, but Harris just reported that 47% of millennials have one or more non-visible tattoos. So just a little anchor about the generation. Um, most of them are describing themselves as independents. Um, and of the remainder, more call themselves Democrats than Republicans. Um, interestingly, young whites voted for Romney and young minority millennials voted for Obama. And what I thought was particularly striking, and again, it's only a single percentage point, and I shouldn't read very much into that, after all of the commentary on the war on women, young white millennial women voted for Romney. So the numbers weren't quite as dramatic. Again, the change in the minority population is what's really changing that vote overall. Um, their attitudes are an interesting complex of issues. Um, they're not hostile to government, but nor are they cheerleaders for government. Um, Frank Luntz asks this question, he asked it many years ago actually, and he asked them whether or not they believe they'd ever see a UFO. And then he asked them separately whether they, believe they'd, whether they believe they'd ever see a social security check. And as you can imagine, in two separate questions, more actually said they'd see a UFO than thought they'd see a social security check. So you get a sense of the skepticism about government. They see, you see the same pattern on business. They're not hostile to business, but nor are they cheerleaders for business overall. One of the Democratic pollsters in town um, with whom I work on some of these data has the big contract for one of the um, youth TV programs. And um, they've been asking them an identical question for many, many years. It's a very straightforward question. It's one we don't have often enough in public opinion of younger people. It asks them what they want to be when they grow up. And you get all the familiar answers, doctor, lawyer, teacher, nurse, and that, those have been pretty constant for a long time. But in the early 1990s, they began seeing something they'd never seen before. Again, all the familiar answers, but a small number of them began to start volunteering that they wanted to be small businessmen or small businesswomen. And again, not a lot of confidence in government in Washington, not a lot of confidence in business. They've seen their parents' friends get laid off in this deep recession that I think has had such a profound impact on them. Um, but they're pretty confident in themselves. And they, the entrepreneurial instinct, which we've never seen in a question of that sort, coming up spontaneously. This is a question you can give any answer you want when they tabulate the responses. It's been pretty consistent since they started asking it in the early 1990s. And I think um, that's going to be a very distinctive feature of that generation. Another thing that's quite distinctive about it, we see, for example, um, Harvard and the Institute of Politics there does a poll of them every quarter. And they ask them a lot of different attitudinal questions. But, and I think this could really have a lot of dividends for the society. For many, many years, young people said they wanted to come to Washington, be active in federal affairs. You're seeing a lot more, and this is certainly true of my very bright interns at AEI. Um, they're now saying they want to go back to their local communities where they feel they can make a difference. The distaste for conventional politics is pretty, pretty strong among this group overall. They are not embracing socialism. Um, they are, thank God, um, um, but they, and they certainly don't know very much about it. They're the generation most receptive to socialism when you ask them about whether or not they have a positive or negative term, uh, positive or negative uh, feeling about a bunch of different terms. Capitalism is more popular, the free enterprise system is more popular, but a lot of them are still, um, you know, socialism, it sounds good too, and maybe that's a Bernie Sanders effect, not sure what that is, but those numbers have not moved in the last three years in Gallup's polling. What's more significant to me is in the RDI breaks, Republican, Democrat, Independent breaks on this Gallup question, 58% of Democrats have a positive opinion <coughs> of socialism. 
that's just enormously significant, and it shows how very different our parties are at this particular point. So those are two groups that I'm looking at, and I want to touch on one more that's part of the rising American electorate or America ascendant that the Democrats talk about, and that is single women. Um, in the 2020 census, we expect half of all women to be unmarried. Um, married people lean toward the Republican Party, unmarried people, which is a, a complicated group. It's not just, it's not just young people. Um, it's not just, excuse me, single people. It's people who are widowed, it's people who are divorced, and the exit pollsters never break that out for us. So we really, you know, we need to know a lot more about this group overall. But this one is driven largely by the young, and of course, the Democrats explain their defeat in, in their massive defeats in 2010 and 2014 on the fact that a lot of single women who are mostly young didn't show up at the polls. And so huge drives to get this group to turn out, to bring this group solidly in the Democratic camp overall. Um, the married share of the population um, is still very large. About two-thirds of us on the exit poll data are married. Um, and women are more Democratic than are men. Um, but um, um, this growth of the single women cohort is something that we're going to have to be watching, I think, very closely as we go ahead. And I promised I would conclude by saying a few words about Donald Trump and where we are, I think, in the election. Um, um, in the last few days, we've had six polls that have asked a very important question, and this is one I did not talk about. This is a question about party loyalty. Um, they, when they ask you whether you're going to vote for Trump or Clinton or Sanders or Clinton, they then we can then look at what Republicans said about that question, what Democrats said, what independents said overall. And NBC News and the Wall Street Journal in the field about two weeks ago found that um, only 72% of Republicans said that they would be willing to vote for Donald Trump. That poll turned out to be an outlier. In all the more recent polls, it's at about 81 to 83%. Again, the, we're, we're having poll after poll coming at us very, very quickly at this particular time. That's just where Mitt Romney was and John McCain in 2008 and 2012. So there appears to be, Republicans appear to be coalescing at this point um, around Donald Trump. Um, both of them, as I'm sure you've heard, have very high unfavorable ratings, the highest unfavorable ratings for Hillary Clinton forever in, of any Democratic nominee. Uh, again, we're in a much more negative atmosphere generally than we were, let's say, in 1972. But, but just um, the highest numbers ever for Hillary Clinton, very high numbers for Donald Trump. And, and um, I think it could be a close election. I'm not one who sees this being a Goldwater wipeout. Um, I think it could be close. A lot depends on what happens in the next in the next few months before the election. But I was particularly distressed, and I'm going to conclude with this and then answer your questions, um, by um, a question in the Fox News poll that came out yesterday. They asked separately whether Hillary Clinton was in this election for herself or for the good of the country. And they asked the same question about Donald Trump. And Respondents to both questions said they were both in it for themselves and not for the good of the country. And that's the impression that a lot of Americans have. The poll also asked whether they were honest and corrupt. People did not think they were both honest and corrupt. Whether they had high moral character, nobody thought either one of them had high moral character. So this is, we're, we're in different territory and a lot of things could happen between now and November, but that's a quick sketch of the things I'm watching and I'd be happy to try to answer any of your questions. Thank you. And I brought all the numbers in the handout, so you don't have to remember them all. So anyway. We have a couple mics at the end of the room, so if you guys have a question, just wait for the mic so we can get it recorded. Or speak very loudly. I can do that. Huh. I have never been asked a poll question in my entire life. I also have never been called for jury duty. Mm -hmm. And I have been registered in three different states. Mm -hmm. How do they pick me? Where does this come from? And nobody I know, that when we ever talk about it, occasionally somebody has said they have. Well, I hang up on them, so that's my—that's how I deal with pollsters. Um, no, I don't always do that, but I—you get a lot of calls from them. Um, think about going to your doctor and having a blood test, 
He doesn't need to take all of your blood to find out what's wrong or right with you. He just needs to take a very tiny sample. That's the principle of survey sampling. So what the computer spits out, randomly generated telephone numbers, all exchange phone numbers are available to the pollsters. Cell phones, I'll tell you a little bit about the problems of the pollsters and cell phones now, but all other numbers are available to the pollsters and the computer just keeps skipping intervals and calling that person. And for a well-designed poll to get somebody to talk to them, they often have to make nine or 10 calls to find somebody at home and somebody who's willing to talk. But all of it is based on the principles of statistics. I'm not a statistician. I've just sort of learned this by the seat of my pants. Uh, but the principle is the same as taking a prick of your blood rather than all your blood to figure out what's wrong with you. And what they do, they have to weight all of the polls to make sure the sample looks like America. And we know what America looks like from what the census tells us every 10 years. And they do a lot more censuses in between. And so we know that that um, X percent of the electorate will be female in, in 2016, 54%, we think. Um, and we know all of this from the data the census is continually collecting, but collecting in a big way in every decennial census year. Now, cell phones are a real problem for the pollster because it's really expensive for them to call cell phones because there are not national directories available <coughs> of cell phone exchanges. So that if they call you on your cell phone, and let's say you're in, you're at, you're in 202 area code, but yet you have a 578 cell phone number, they've got to ask a lot of introductory questions about where you live and where, you're, where, you're, you, know, where you live to know what region you fit in in terms of the overall demographic profile. Now, a lot of times they can't get the right number of 18 to 29-year-olds in the sample. And so they weight the data based on the responses they've gotten from those who do respond. And so it, it, is, it is really hard to poll well. And hardly anyone does in-person surveying anymore. Um, and as you know, looking around the world, the pollsters have blown it in lots of places in the last year. Um, the British pollsters are more introspective than the American pollsters. And they immediately went back into the field after the British election where they, the pollsters thought Cameron would lose to try to figure out what they'd done wrong. And um, they did an in-person survey, extremely expensive less so in, in Britain than it is here. And they did side-by-side -side online surveys, which most of the pollsters in Britain relied on before the election contest there. The in-person survey got the results almost perfectly on the nose. The online poll um, was significantly off as it had been throughout the election campaign. And they thought there were two reasons for that, one that happens in this country and also happens there. Um, older people just won't take the exit poll ballot. Uh, older women in particular, so they're undersampling a key group of voters. But in Britain, and this was particularly interesting, they had the right uh, proportion of young people in the poll. But what happened was that young people who were leaning labor were much more actively involved in politics and much more likely to answer the polls than young people who were not actively involved in politics, and that skewed the young sample in the poll. So they got it wrong on two ends. And we're going to watch very closely what happens during Brexit. Um, very high-profile issue there, um, extremely high-profile. And we'll see whether they do a better job. They say they've tried to correct for what they're doing. But as I said at the beginning, I think this business um, may be supplanted by what the Obama campaign did so well in 2008 and 2012, and that is data analytics. Um, uh, there's a great story in a book by Sasha Eisenberg, who wrote a book called The Victory Lab, about how the uh, Democratic um, Party uses data analytics, going back to the academic work in this area. And then he took it forward to the Obama campaign in 2008. And it starts off or, you know, in the chapter about how they used it in the campaign. It starts off with a story about a young, young guy who'd um, graduated from the University of Chicago. Steve Levitt had been his major professor, the Freakonomics guy. And, he remembered that something that Steve Levitt, uh, Steve Levitt had said in class. And Steve Levitt said to this young man, you know, get a nest egg really quickly so that you can go do something that you won't be paid for. So he signed up for the Obama campaign. And they didn't really have much of a data analytics operation very early on. He was sent to Iowa. And because he was the only person who knew anything about computers, he, they had him fixing the phones, fixing everybody's computers. He wasn't working on data analytics at all. But what he was doing every night was taking all of those little cards that you see at campaign rallies that says sign up if you're you know, going to be a friend of Hillary Clinton's or Barack Obama's or 
even Donald Trump. So he was taking all those little cards, feeding that information into a computer. That computer went to a computer here in Washington, very close to here, and Barack Obama was sitting in one room dialing for dollars, because you know you can't dial for dollars in your Senate office, you have to go across the street. And then this computer was putting together um, all of the names and addresses, the email addresses, of those people that they'd found all over Iowa who might want to vote for them. And um, you can learn a lot about somebody from his or her email address, an awful lot. And that's the basis of data analytics that I think is supplanting the modern polling business as we know it. I mean, you need both. The Obama campaign did an initial, what we call a benchmark survey in Iowa of 10,000 people. I haven't seen a sample that large in a campaign in, a, well, in I don't see proprietary polling that the Republicans and Democrats do. But they did a sample of 10,000. They matched what they were feeding into the computer about where you lived. They began sending you emails um, asking you know, about whether you have friends who might want to be involved and interacting with people, forming a huge database, which they held very closely after the 2008 campaign. This is very valuable because it's incredibly hard to build a national voter voter file. It is only a few people in history have done it, and they were starting to do it in Iowa. I was struck by a piece in the Post during the Virginia gubernatorial race that said that the young people going sort of door to door for, I guess, was Gillespie. I'm not sure when. They had 800 pieces of information on every voter. Um, now, those were not largely attitudinal. They were what cars you drove, what, thing, what radio stations you listened to, what TV shows you watched. That's the basis of data analytics. We look at your affinities rather than your attitudes. And that tells us an awful lot about who you are and who you're going to be voting for. Those young people going door to door knew which script to use at each household based on the extremely sophisticated data analytics. Now, both sides use it. Donald Trump has said he's not going to use it, or he doesn't have a data analytics operation. He just hired a pollster this week. Um, he better get up to speed, because this is the way of modern campaigning. That's a very long answer to how they create samples, but they try to create a sample that looks like America, and it's more and more difficult for them overall. Adam Brickley, Heritage, I'm the sound guy, but I had to sneak in uh, okay. for this one. But uh, I was wondering, you commented a little bit earlier on the evangelical vote vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis Trump, right. and I was wondering if you might comment a little bit more on what that vote looks like, because we're getting asked that a lot, and it's just looking at the results that I've seen, so that county by county on CNN, some of the evangelical bastion areas they list tended not to go for Trump, and I was wondering That's if right. we have a rising cohort of people who identify as evangelicals but aren't practicing that might be skewing that number like we've seen with Catholics? Yeah, it's an extremely important question. Um, we know both about evangelicals and all, also about um, all other denominations. We used to look at the population by denomination, and now we look at it by degree of what we call religiosity, how actively you practice your faith. And there are very significant differences in a Catholic today who goes to church, goes to mass every week has more in common with a, a Protestant who goes to church every week and a Jew who goes to to synagogue every week than that Catholic has in common with a Catholic who doesn't go to church at all. So degrees of religiosity and degrees of involvement in your faith are some of what may be the explanations from some of these county to county returns. But there are a lot of puzzles in the exit poll data. I mean, do people just vote for a winner? And is that why Trump did so well with so many evangelicals as the, as the contest uh, or someone who looks like a winner? Do they do, does making America great appeal more than some of the other convictions of that population? It's really hard to know from the exit poll data at this point. Um, we just don't have enough data to know. But there are real puzzles in it from, you know, Indiana in particular, I think. So, um, anyway, if you have any information, I'd like to have it because I'm still trying to understand it overall. So, yeah, I'm Sally Linderman. I'm um, from the Virginia Federation of Republican Women. Um, it's very interesting what you're you're talking about, and what I'm surmising is that this particular presidential election, you can't put your finger on any kind of. Uh, uh, statistical way that is going to kind of turn out. What Trump has done is he gone, he's gone out and built a new movement. Mm -hmm. He's building a new Republican Party. And it's, so it's, it's, it's the design is not going to be what we're all used to and how we target ourselves 
when we get out there in the grassroots. We're bringing in all kinds of new people. A lot of the millennials are starting to come over to uh, the Republican Party. And I can't say around the rest of the United States, but I know here in Northern Virginia, we're getting a lot of them in Fairfax and yeah. in Arlington. Um, I think that, uh, and they, you watch that Waters on the, on the street when he's talking questions and asking these young people. We have a big problem in this country in the education uh, all the way going up from the lower schools all the way up to higher education. And we know that they're more socialistic uh, and the higher in the colleges and universities like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. Um, we, we, have to, we have to devise a way of getting around that and getting the shape of new minds and the new minds to come over to be a little more. And I think conservative, and I believe that Donald Trump is a fiscal conservative, he's a social moderate. He's a social, well, moderate. But I think if we all um, learn how to circumvent and circumlocute and certain go around certain things and then bring the argument back to us because we have to educate people and we haven't been doing that and that's why we're in the mess that we're in today. Yeah. Um, do you think that the if Trump is creating a new Republican Party, are the fissures in the GOP among conservatives so deep that we, in 26 or 2020, we won't see anything that looks like what we're seeing today? I mean, do, do the, does it split apart afterwards? If it keeps if, going the way it's going, yeah. it's not going to, it, we're going to have a whole new ball game, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the group that's, the, the establishment politicians, which have gotten us into the mess that we're in that is creating the backlash that you're seeing around the country is um, they want Trump, not because they ordinarily they turn off to him, but now because of what's been going on, they want a businessman to try and clean up the mess that we're in yeah. that can get things done in a short, shorter fashion and time span because that's the way a businessman thinks. Yeah. We can deal with Trump after, <laughs> after that stuff, but he's changing as time goes on. He's got yeah. a good visors in there and we'll see see how it progresses along. And I think you're gonna see more and more people coming on board with him that have said, no, I would never support him. But he's going to come around because the advisors he's have, I know personally, are, are um, shaping and molding him to, from that bombastic uh, style that he had. Yeah. But that did attract a lot of young people out there in the Midwest. Yeah. I can't believe that I forgot to mention this particular datum from the exit polls. My eyes just must have uh, glanced right over it. But um, they asked the question, this question in 15 Republican contests. And in 13 of them, Republicans, voters in Republican contests said they felt that they had been betrayed by politicians in the GOP. And in two other states, it was 48%. It was less than half. But in all of the other states, it was more than, more than half of all voters in those states said that they felt betrayed. So that is exactly the sentiment to which you're appealing. So. Well, that is all the time that we have today. So I would, on behalf of Heritage, like so to give you this uh, Heritage scarf because oh, it's a beautiful day out today, but it's oh. been abnormally chilly. <laughs> so tomorrow it'll be again tomorrow 55 and rainy, yeah. so you can use it. So thank you so much thank for you. coming thank out. You. It was lovely thank having you. you. Thank you. Thank and you. Uh, oh, then on behalf of uh, CPLPI, I would like to give you our coffee mug, and it thank has you. the phrase on it, no good deed goes unpunished, um, coined by Claire Booth Lewis herself. Yes, indeed, yeah. And Thank then I would so also much. like to give you our tote bag. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank Very you so nice. much. Thank you um, so we much. We have lunch yes. for everyone across the lobby in the Van Andel Center. So if you guys want to make your way that way, we can chat a little bit more with Carlin about some of the things she discussed today. So if you guys want to make your way out there and join the conversation. Thank you again. Thank you.